0: reading comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And if you're using a pew Bible, uh, it's on page 828. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. Good to be here. Um, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this, this past sermon series. Like, give the Lord a, an offering of praise if you've enjoyed it. <clears throat> um, you know, if you're just joining us, uh, welcome. I'm Young, I'm one of the pastors here. This summer, just to kind of catch you up, we've been doing a very interesting and I think very needed um, ser- sermon series titled Hard Questions, Hard Questions. Um, and during the series, we've been addressing um, some really serious questions that the world is asking the church. The world is asking Christian Uh, Christians around the world and Christianity in general. Uh, Questions like, how can a good God allow evil? Uh, Questions like, does science disprove God and the Bible? Um, The last time I preached a few weeks ago, I was given the topic of, why is there hypocrisy in the church? Um, And so that was a a really easy message, right? (laughs) Um, Today I get a much easier topic, uh, can Christians love homosexual people? of course, I'm you know, kidding because uh, it is a serious topic and I'm just trying to uh, line the mood a little bit here. Um, but <clears throat> I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that today's message will actually be uplifting and you'll come away um, feeling better equipped to understand and to engage and to have conversations. And uh, that's our job um, here at church, to to be able to do that for you as you go out into the world. So, um, last week, we tackled the uh, question of, is homosexuality a sin? Because, um, you know, some people do not believe it is. And, uh, you know, if you'd like to listen to last week's uh, sermon or any of the other sermons in this hard question series, you can visit our website um, I mentioned last week's message because obviously it opens the door to today's, you know, hard topic. So last week, what uh, Pastor Susung talked about was, as we addressed this question, is homosexuality a sin, uh, we approached it, well, from whose point of view? And so because of, you know, the fact that we're a church and we believe in the Bible, um, we wanted to approach it from what does the Bible say? We know what maybe other people may say or what other religions say, but since we are um, trying to be faithful to the Bible, let's talk about what does the Bible say about homosexuality, about the purpose of sex, about how God invented sex. Um, So if one doesn't believe in the Bible, you know, and and that that it's God's word, that's a wholly different issue. That's not the topic for today. Um, Actually, I've preached on that topic uh, before, and I know um, other pastors have as well, uh, but again, that's not today's topic. Uh, for today, we're going to talk about, again, what does the Bible say about this question, can Christians uh, love their gay neighbors? So you see the passage and title up there. Now since we're doing a topical sermon, we're going to be looking at several Bible passages, not just one, but several um, that are relevant to this topic. Okay. Um, and we're gonna start uh, with two passages in the Bible that'll be the main focus for today, and from those main two passages, and also the help of um, some other shorter ones, we're gonna draw two centrally important principles um, about uh, ge- just genuine Christianity, okay? We're gonna look at two genuine um, principles about real Christianity, And then from there, we're going to apply those to a couple of hypothetical situations. We're going to look at some hypothetical, um, you know, uh, circumstances. And then we're going to see how those two biblical principles apply to those. Does that make sense? All right. So we're going to go through the principles and then we're going to go to hypotheticals and and see how it applies. Um, Again, because of the the sensitive nature of the topic, I feel that it's worth the time to really... Prepare our minds and our hearts to receive this word. So, I think it's going to be very helpful for a talk today if we get um, just in, in, in a humble mindset, a humble heart set, um, and, and talk about a few things uh, before we get into this. Um, you may or may not know uh, that there are a lot of people in the gay community, a lot of people who um, have same sex attraction who if they look at this question, can Christians love their gay neighbor, their answer would be, I don't care because I don't wanna be loved by those Christians. Huh. You may have met people who have that feeling. And let's be honest, I don't know that we can really blame them for feeling that way. I don't want you to love me because of all the things you people have done. Now, this is a very common and um, unfortunate misperception out there about Christianity that Christians are supposed to hate homosexual people that all, you know, the Bible commands us to hate uh, homosexuality and homosexual people. Let me go on the record here, all right? True Christianity that actually follows the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the full witness of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, does not teach Christians to hate homosexual people. So that's the witness of the entirety of the scriptures, but we have the problem of the human element, right? We know what's right, but we don't always follow. Um, you know, there's also perceptions. Um, th- you know, this perception comes from the fact that there are passages in the Old Testament. So, you know, people who uh, have same-sex attraction, they might turn to the Old Testament and say, "Well, look, it's here. It says you, you need to like take these people and stone them and kill them." Um, they talk about God's judgment for people who have you know sex with a person of the same gender. What many people seem to forget is that God holds judgment for all kinds of sin. So if you go into the Old Testament, if we're gonna go into the Old Testament, there is judgment of God upon all kinds of sin. And also what many people don't know is that the Old Testament prophesies into the future about a Messiah. The Old Testament prophesies about a savior who will be born in Bethlehem and come through, through the line of King David and then all the judgment that is prescribed in the Old Testament, all the, the, the justice and the punishment that is prescribed there and that the people incur upon themselves because they broke God's law, all of that judgment and wrath will instead not fall on the people who incurred it but upon this prophesied Messiah. Why? Because God Wants to forgive his people and wants them to live and not die. So that's all in the Old Testament. I haven't even gone to the New Testament. And so as you can see, this misperception that the Bible teaches that we should hate, um, you know, not just homosexual people, but, you know, racist people and thieving people and lustful people and drunk people. um, That's actually not true. Because it's not taking into the full account of the whole witness of God, of the Word of God. Because the Old Testament prophesies it about a Messiah who's going to take all of that judgment and all of that wrath from us and take it upon himself so that we might be spared. Amen? So that we may be restored. Amen? So that we may be recreated into the glorious people that we were created to be. Amen? And then the New Testament contains the good news that this prophesied Messiah has finally come and he's identified as Jesus who was born in Bethlehem who did come through the line of David and who as recorded in the gospels at the beginning of the New Testament um, did all the things that we know about. So yes, there is punishment for homosexual sin, but there's also similarly absolute and strict punishment for any kind of heterosexual sin as well. And we talked a little bit about this last week. That being said, again, as I alluded to earlier, just remember there are people, and we've probably done this ourselves, we self-identify as Christian, but maybe we still choose to hate certain kinds of people. Maybe it's not homosexual people, but maybe it's a certain skin color or a certain country that you just don't like. And that isn't honestly following Jesus' teachings, right? And God will make all of us accountable for such falsities. He will. A person who says that they're Christian, but then cherry-picks which of Jesus' teachings that they're going to choose to follow obviously is not an accurate representative of true Christianity any more than, like, say, a fish who self-identifies as a fish but then says they hate water. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense, right? That is not a true fish. At least that's not a fish who's going to live much longer, right? And in the same way, a Christian hating others isn't representing true Christianity according to the full witness of Scripture. So I say all that again to help us to come into this humble mindset as we address this question, how do we love, can we, and how do we love our gay neighbor? In Romans 3.23, we are reminded that... um, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And so, you know, today's question could easily, uh, just as easily be, can Christians love their adulterous neighbor? Can Christians love their lustful neighbor? Can Christians love their racist neighbor? Basically, if you really think about it, the real question is, and always has been, can Christians love any neighbor, right? Can Christians love? That's the question. That's a question that the world really is asking the church, and you, me, the church, we need to answer. We need to respond. Can Christians love any neighbor? Because if you and I decide that we're only going to love our neighbor based on whether they sinned or not, well, then nobody's going to be loved, right? (laughs) Think about that. If you base your decision to love people whether they sinned or not, Nobody's gonna be loving anyone. But that kind of makes sense because if you look at the nightly news, the local news, right, the, the, the national news, the international news, hey, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Nobody's loving anyone. And it's all because of some kind of perceived sin that the other person has, the other party, the other religion. So, to see what the Bible says about um, these questions and today's main question, let's open up our Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew 22, 34 to 40, um, if you prefer to have it in your hands. We also have it here. Um, I'm not going to read it since uh, Chorus already read it for us. This incident occurred towards the end of Jesus' preaching ministry, during which Jesus had spent a lot of time and energy trying to rock the boat, not only for the non religious people, but also for the religious people, maybe even more so. And so This is an incident where the religious people are now challenging Jesus because he's kind of riled the hornet's nest and the Pharisees are looking to fight and they want to, they're looking for every opportunity to bring Jesus down, to challenge him, to show him up to be the fraud that they think he is. And so they try to test him and they ask Jesus this very profound, what they think is a very profound question. And I think it is a profound question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. The trick there is like, well, if you say there's one that's above all, then you're saying all the others are not, you know, important. I guess that's the trap. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He, he's um, appealing to their Jewish culture. If you had grown up as a Jew and, you know, the He's, he's talking to Jews, right, who grew up in the Jewish culture. You would know uh, this statement. It's like there's no way you would not know it because it's almost like a commercial. <laughs> it's almost like a viral commercial. Even if you didn't believe it, you knew it. And so everybody's kind of like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a pretty good answer. Like we all, we all kind of knew that, right? Yeah, right. Ooh. Smart as Jesus. But then, Jesus adds a little twist. A little unexpected element to his answer. He then says in verse 39, let's read that together. Right, just 39. (laughs) You'll be reading more, You you get a chance, I promise. Interesting. Notice that the scribes, they didn't ask Jesus what the first two commandments were, the greatest two. They only asked him what the greatest is. But then Jesus gives him a little more. Basically, you're not getting what I'm trying to tell you, so I'm going to be very direct here. (laughs) You didn't ask me for what the second greatest commandment is, but I'm going to give it to you for free. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then in you know, other passages, that's where he launches into the Good Samaritan story. And the thing about that, we're not gonna talk too much about it, but the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They didn't just hate them, they thought they were like dogs. looked down on them. And it turns out that in his story, it's the Samaritan who actually fulfilled the second greatest commandment. And so he was saying, hey, you guys, you know this, but why aren't you doing it? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so uh, he, in verse 40, now you can read verse 40. All the law the on these two commandments. They ask him what the greatest one commandment is. He gives him a totally unexpected answer. He says, all the law hangs on these two commandments. You cannot have love for God but not love for your neighbor. The converse is true. If you don't have love for your neighbor, you really don't have love for God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. There's no way around this. This is what Jesus is saying. He's tying them together. That's why he says, verse 40, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two, not the one, these two. He puts them together. No one else had done that before. But it makes sense, doesn't it? If you were to love the author of life with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, then how can I turn around connected to the God who loves all and created all and then hates hate his other creation? It just doesn't make sense. You can't do that. Love your neighbor as yourself God wants you to love your neighbor as if your neighbor was you. Amen. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this or heard it this way, but I had this kind of funny thought. Imagine this. you go outside in the morning to get in your car to go to work and then you look across uh, your to you know the other driveway and see your neighbor getting hit to his car as well and guess what? Your neighbor is you. Your neighbor is you. You're like, whoa. And it's, you're kind of envious because he's getting into like a, you know, a, a BMW or something. You're getting into just like a you know, Toyota Tercel or whatever, right? Wow, well, that's me. Your neighbor is you. And, and let, me, let me put it this way. It's, this is a, you know, imaginary exercise so we can do this. It's not just a clone of you. It is literally you, Okay. How would you want you to treat you? <laughs> That's an easy question, right? We all want to be treated nicely. We all want to be treated with respect. We all want to be treated gently, not harshly, not attacking, not condescending, right? Who wants to be treated like that? Nobody. And so when we make a mistake and, we, and when we sin when God loves us and forgives us and is patient with us and is gentle with us, amen, he's saying, now go and love you the same way that you would want to be loved by God. So now our church is going to go out and you're going to imagine everybody you see is you. <laughs> and you're going to treat them as if, that's me because really it is because we all came from the same God. It's your brother. It's your sister. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. Think about the next time you have a conflict. Think about that the next time that person doesn't love you as a neighbor, as as themselves. What is your response going to be? That's the hard part, right? What is your response going to be? We have the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to respond not as the world would respond but to respond as Jesus responded to us. And in that moment that we choose to love like Jesus loved you and to love our neighbor who offended us and trespassed against us as the Lord's Prayer says, treat that person as if I'm literally you. How would you want to be treated in your trespass? Gently. With mercy. But also with truth. Right? So, this is what I'm trying to help you understand. This humility, this mutual Understanding of where we're all coming from—that we all have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God—and so here's principle number one. I remember I talked about. We, I'm going to give you two principles. Here's the first one. Can you guys? Are going to, I'm going to read the question. You guys read the principle. Can Christians love their gay neighbor? And for some reason, it didn't get up there. And God has shown his love to you and to everyone else. God has shown his love to you and to your neighbor. God loves your neighbor who cut you off on the freeway. God loves your neighbor who was rude to you at Costco in line. God loves your neighbor who stole your work and plagiarized and took credit for you. Yeah. That's horrible, God's not saying that's right, but God is so merciful that just like he loves you despite your sin, he loves your neighbor despite his sin. That doesn't sound like a hateful God to me, does it? So that's principle number one. Principle number two, that's gonna help us answer today's hard question, can we, uh, how, can we and how can we love um, our gay neighbors? We go to another story of Jesus. In this incident, Jesus is teaching a crowd as he's wont to do. And then the hypocritical Pharisees, again, I explained to you why they don't like him, because he keeps you know, telling the truth. <laughs> and uh, the hypocritical Pharisees interrupt him. Um, so rude. And they bring Jesus, uh, they bring before Jesus a woman who was caught in adultery. And they don't bring her to like help her, to like, you know, hey, you need to go talk to Jesus. Maybe he can, you know, help you or whatever. But they bring her, the Pharisees do, to trap Jesus. Because they wanna see, and remember, they're doing this in front of the crowd. So they're trying to embarrass Jesus. They're trying to trap him because, side note here, notice that the Pharisees did not, they only brought the woman who was caught in adultery. Where's the other person, All right? But that's who the Pharisees chose to bring, right? Before Jesus and before the crowds. So the Pharisees, I guess their their plan is they wanna see what Jesus, if he lets the woman go in front of everyone, then the Pharisees can can charge him with breaking God's law because at that time God's law, because remember, I talked about the Messiah, but people didn't really know yet that he was a Messiah, so they still were under the old law, the old covenant. old understanding. So they thought, we gotta stone this woman, right? We gotta kill her. And so, because that's God's law, um, Jesus is gonna break that law by saying, no, it's okay, let her go. But if he says that they should do what the law says to do, then they can call Jesus a hypocrite. Why? Because Jesus has been preaching repentance and forgiveness. So how can Jesus, you know, preaching this, Forgiveness and, and, and repentance and forgiveness, how can they, he um, you know, condone the capital punishment for this woman? So they're trying to trap him. So let's go there. Well, that font's pretty small, sorry about that. But you have your Bibles too. Um, you can go to John chapter eight, verses two to 11 for those who are visually challenged like me. Early in the morning, Jesus, he came again to the temple. All the peoples came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, to Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such woman. So what do you say? Dun, dun, dun. They, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. Uh, you know, we could have a whole other sermon talking about, what, you know, speculating. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but that's not the topic for today. Verse 7, so don't get distracted by that, okay? As they continued to ask him, so he's writing something, and they're like, Jesus, you going to answer? He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and started writing on the ground. When the crowd heard this, the scribes and the Pharisees, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So all of a sudden, they're all gone. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In other words, has no one... Cast the first stone. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Principle number two. What can we learn from Jesus in this incident about how to love our neighbors in sin? Go ahead and read. Principle number two. Do you see that? From this passage, loving your neighbor does not mean you condone. Because what do we see here? We see Jesus, what does he tell the woman? From now on, go and sin no more, right? Sin no more. As Jesus often preached in his public preaching ministry, he proclaimed repentance and forgiveness to the crowds. And here we see him being consistent and saying the same thing that he's been saying to the crowds and saying it to this individual. Sin no more. That's what repentance is. Sin no more. And by reminding the crowd that they... Deserve to be punished because he said, And if you have no sin, if not, by all means, pick up the nearest stone and throw it with all your might. Give him a nice you know, fastball right down the middle. By all means, if you have no sin. By reminding the crowd that they all deserve to be punished, like we talked about earlier in the sermon, right? Because they had all had their own sin, Jesus was teaching the crowd to be merciful to this woman and to spare her her due punishment. And that this was all catalyzed by him, by Jesus, the person of Jesus, the word of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. And yet at the same time, after the crowds disperse, what does he do? He's gently firm and truthful by telling her that what she was doing was sin. She do, he doesn't compromise. He doesn't like try, oh yeah, you know what you did is kind of you know <laughs> oh, it's kind of bad. Jesus does not compromise. Says, Neither do I condemn you. But from now on, go and sin no more. That is repentance. I think there may be a little confusion. I think it's worth clearing up that if you love your gay neighbor, that does not mean you are saying that you agree with homosexual activity. That is not saying. Let me be more nuanced and accurate. That is not saying that you believe that the Bible says right. Because it doesn't matter what we say; it matters what God says. That homosexuality is not the purpose of sex, as we talked about last week. So when you love your neighbor, and I tried to make this little alliteration here so it could be easy for you to remember. When you love your neighbor, it doesn't mean that you're condoning everything, but it also doesn't mean that you're condemning him. There's a balance, you see? You could either condone and say, yeah, it's OK. It's all right. Or on the other end, you can say, you're so wrong and you need to be punished and you're horrible. And Jesus is saying, in himself, there's a way to be truthful and yet merciful, merciful. I think for us, we need to remember that if you are a believer, and if you're not a believer here, um, I'm so glad you're here. And you know, if anyone's watching later on at home or whatnot, um, this is just the beginning, just the beginning of talking and figuring out and understanding. And we've been saying this, this kind of theme uh, repeatedly throughout this hard question series. But if you are a believer, consider yourself blessed that you were able to. Be taught somewhere along the line about what God's Word teaches about what is wrong and what is right. But that doesn't mean that you have the permission to hate people who disagree with your views. I think, especially in some cultures, disagree and hate go together. We need to stop that. I don't care what culture we come from. Now we are in the new culture of Jesus, amen? And Jesus shows that you can separate those two. You can disagree and you can love. You don't have to disagree. And if I disagree with you, I hate you. That's that's like some other weird gospel of the world. If we truly follow Jesus as his disciples, we can separate those two and we can disagree but still love. We don't have to condone, but we don't have to condemn. That's not our job. God is the judge. He's the final judge. Okay? So, um, I'm going to give you one little bit from Romans 3. Ooh, I'm doing pretty good on time. And then we're going to go to some hypotheticals. Okay, kind of like Fun little, I guess, mental hypothetical exercises. But before we get into that, um, I just want to remind us, you know, Romans, I started with Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all of us have sinned. Can you say that? For all have sinned, all have sinned. and fall short of the glory of God. Congratulations, you just memorized Romans 3.23, one of the most important verses of all time. Okay, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, that's such a bummer, right? Oh, thanks, young, you know. But this is why God is so awesome. That's verse 23. Look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace. You are a sinner. And you fall short of the glory of God. But in God's eyes, you stand justified, how? By the grace, by the love, by the mercy, by the patience of God, by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus, for you. Verse 24, you're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a gift, you have no reason to be proud that you got a gift, a gift is a gift. The person who should be proud is a giver, not the receiver. Right? Can I get an amen? amen? The gift through the redemption, the restoration, the reconciliation, the payment—that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a fancy word, old word. Basically, it means like a payment, a, a, a appeasement. Um, a conciliation by his blood, very costly. And how do you receive this propitiation? How do you receive this justification in God's eyes? How do you receive this gift, guys? Don't look at me, look at the word. To be received by faith. Can you say that? To be received by faith. That's verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he passed over your former sins. You understand that? He passed over your former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one, the ones who have faith in Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's Jesus Christ. Earlier in verse 40 of Matthew 22, what did Jesus say when he was asked what is the greatest commandment? He said, Well, there's two. And in verse 40, he wraps it up by saying, For all the law and the prophets, right, hang on these two commandments. These two commandments find their perfect union and nexus in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 40, when he's talking about the law and the prophets, he's saying the law and the prophets is all fulfilled in me. I fulfill the law perfectly. I was tempted in every way, as we're going to look at later, but it was without sin. And on the other hand, right, what else? I was the prophesied one. I'm the prophet, I'm the Messiah, I'm the, I'm the last prophet, I'm the Messiah that all the prophets were pointing forward to. So in verse 40 we see this idea that in Jesus we have this perfect union of the two greatest commandments and in, through Jesus, in faith, in, through our faith in Jesus we then fulfill the two greatest commandments and therefore all the law and the prophets. Okay, so I'm, I'm doing a little different. Usually we end with that good news, right? But today I like to think that's the good news. Yeah. Is it just for you? No. So that you can be transformed. So that you can share that good news with others. So how can we do that? Hypotheticals. Here are two very foundational principles that any real Christian church will preach. Okay, so we've looked at those principles, now let's look at these, uh, some hypotheticals, and then we'll apply our two principles, okay? Uh, That's uh, what we just talked about. Read that for us, please, everybody. Well, that's principle number one, right? Principle number one. In order to love your neighbor, you need to understand that you too have sinned because all of us have sinned, you' are neither supreme. Well, if gay people are not allowed in church, then according to God, you're not allowed in church, so get out. And by the same token, if you are in church, then your gay neighbor has every right to be in church too. You understand? And if you start to blur that line, it's because, not because God is saying, it's because you think your sin is a more respectable sin than the other person's. That's complete hogwash. That's what, that's what the Pharisees were guilty of. Literally. Don't do that because there's, in the next chapter of Matthew 23, there's like seven woes to the Pharisees. So, can gay people come to Our churches, Revive churches, worship service, yes! Right? Can people who've told lies come? Can people who are arrogant come? Can people who've committed adultery come? Yes, yes, and yes. Can people who get drunk come? Yes. Can people who get stoned come? Yes. Stoned both ways, I guess, right? As for leadership, the Bible is clear that the qualifications for leaders is a little different. And you can just, again, we could not my words, go to the Word, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. You can see there that there are different qualities and qualifications for leaders. But as far as church service, everyone is welcome because Jesus said, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And I came to call not the righteous, but I came to call, came to call the, re- the sinners to repentance. Okay? And that's us. It's from Luke chapter five. Now, if someone were to become disruptive during the worship service, we'd probably have to talk with them about it. And if they, you know, agree not to be disruptive anymore, then we could welcome them back. Okay, just as a little side note, sometimes um, apparently that's happened um, in other churches. So that's how we would, in general, um, address that if that were to happen here. No problem. Roll with the punches, right? Next question. Is that it? Yeah. Let's read that. Wow. I was debating. Should I touch this or not? Because it is, it's one thing to talk about the gay neighbor. It's another when that gay neighbor came from your own body, your own family. Right? Let me start with this. What do I do if my child tells me that he or she is gay? Let me tell you this as a pastor. Be, <laughs> intention, be intentional Intentional. Be about having a series of deep conversations with your children before they get too old. Okay? Before the world educates them, educates, on what sex is. The world did not create sex. God created sex. So let's teach our children what God's purpose and design for sex was. So be intentional, why do I keep saying that? Be intentional about having these deep conversations about God designing and inventing sex with your children before they get too old. As far as the age, I'll leave that to you, but just know the world's already talking to them them about it. Probably earlier than you learned about it, because that's just how things are right now. It is what it is. So teach them that God invented this. Now, what do you do if your child tells you that he, she is gay? Um, Obviously, this this differs case by case. And um, let's say you have been wise and listened to my wise words and had those conversations. That makes it much easier to, when they, you know, your child says that they're gay or they have homosexual attractions to have this conversation because they're not already in a posture of defensiveness. Do you understand? Because anything you say, could, it could just fall on deaf ears at that point because they already know you're a Christian. Hopefully, they know you're a Christian. And so it makes it much easier if you've already had those conversations about God's authorship of sex before. Now, so you can build on that. If you have not, (laughs) it's a little harder. Okay, And you'll need to have conversations about, first, why they feel that way. Why do you feel that way? And I'm not gonna sit here and try to give you like, because your child is different from everybody. You know your child, you know how to communicate what works and what doesn't work. But your main goal is to try to understand why do you feel that way? Let's talk about that. So that you can understand them. And you can put yourselves in their shoes. And then in that process, hopefully your child will want to understand you as well as mutually respect and desire to ask what's behind your beliefs. Now, I'm not gonna give a hard and fast rule about how to do that. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying wait passively for your child to ask. Because it depends on how old they are, right? If they're like five, you can tell them. If they're 55, that's a different conversation. So I'm not gonna talk about all the ages. I'm giving you principles, all right? And if you have the situation, Pastor Sousa you know, myself. Uh, you know, we have like several, actually marriage family therapists in our congregation. God has blessed us with, but we have many people who can support and walk you through this if this to ever happen. And I've already said we don't condone. Jesus said, go and sin no more. Parents may wonder if it's okay. This is kind of a bigger question. Is it okay for me to love my gay child after they come out? Again, let's go back. Homosexual sin is no worse than heterosexual sin. Okay? So the real question is, is it okay for parents to love their sinful child? Let me ask you that. If you have a par- uh, ch- children, is it okay for you to love your sinful children? I hope so, because your, your kids won't have anyone to love them, right? All your kids are sinful. I've seen them. <laughs> All right? I've got four of them my own, you know? Yeah. The best example of this probably or, or possibly is from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The son came back, right? After rebelling and dishonoring his dad, squandering his fortune. Basically the son telling the dad, I'd rather have you dead so I could have my share of the inheritance even before he died. Imagine if your son did that to you or your daughter takes it, this guy actually took it. (laughs) I thought he was calling, you know, just bluffing. He actually took my money, and now he's gone, and now he's squandering it. Put yourself in the father's shoes. And then the son, sometime later, comes back, and he sees him. Now, if I'm the dad, I'm like, oh my gosh, how dare, you know what, I'm going to go inside the house and pretend I didn't see him, because I'm going to make him Come and wallow and, and like, just like sit at my feet and beg for forgiveness because I'd be justified. Who here wouldn't feel that way, right? Come on, right? You broke the family and now you come back. But what did he do? He ran to the son, he embraced him, and then he kissed him. All that. Before the son repented and apologized. Before. What does this tell us about the father? That he loved his sinful son. Even before he repented. Even before he apologized. Now, again, we're not condoning. Let's get that straight. Don't conflate those two. Jesus Jesus said, go and sin no more. Right? But he still loved his sinful child. So, anyone here who's seen their kid go through their terrible twos, maybe you're going through it right now, God bless you. Um, Or the tenacious teens, that's what I call it, the tenacious teens. God bless you, we're in that stage right now. Uh, Let's get together and pray. Um, Yes, you can and you should and you ought to love your sinful child. Why? Because I told no, because God loves you, his sinful child. He's your father, you're the sinful child, I'm the sinful child, and he loves us. So we can do that for others as well. Next. Again, this is just, I'm not pretending I, you know, this is comprehensive be all, you know, end all, okay? I'm just touching on different things. Let's read that. What's? This goes to principle number two of Loving is neither condoning nor condemning, right? Loving is mercy. Loving is standing together. Loving is appealing to God. A genuine Christian who wants to be loving and faithful to their relationship with God doesn't want to compromise God's word, but at the same time they know that the same God who is also teaching them It's not their job to condemn. And so how do we love our neighbors who have a homosexual attraction but do not believe in Jesus? That may be like the vast majority, right, of these different subsets that we're talking about today. One way to illustrate this principle is to share um, just about my own friends, and um, I'll try to make this quick, um, but I hope you really get it. Uh, In college, I had... uh, I lived in the dorms, and you know, the dorms are a great place to meet people, right? And I have a friend who, um, you know, they had some friends who came from their high school uh, to UCLA, and so I got to meet some of his friends. And this one person, uh, we just hit it off. I'll just call her uh, Dorothy. That's not a real name, but we'll just call her Dorothy. Dorothy. And we would talk, and what I found interesting about her was she was Korean, but not a Christian. And in my sheltered little suburban life, I had not met a lot of Koreans who didn't go, go, go to church. I met a lot of Koreans who went to church but weren't Christians, but not who just didn't go to church at all. And she was like this. And so it was intriguing to me, and I just wanted to like, because it was so new and you know I'm a young person and we you know we're discovering the world and different people and we would talk and of course the topic would come up about you know religion and church and I would invite hey you want to go to this thing or on campus you know this barbecue that the Christian club is having or come to this church that I'm visiting and um, we just got to know each other and in the t- in the process of doing that we would have these debates about this particular topic in fact she identified at the time as bisexual both attracted to men and to women and that was like whoa by God's grace for some reason maybe because I got to know her before I didn't have any kind of like ill it was more like oh I didn't I didn't thanks for sharing that with me that I feel very like privileged that you would share that very personal information with because this is, Twenty years ago, not now when it's like it's it's advanced as far as being able to come out and not be, you know, persecuted. So this is twenty years ago, and so um, she'd share her worldview, I'd share my worldview, and I'd bring up biological evidence you know, from the world of biology and science to support uh, my points that you know. About what the Bible says, and then she would bring up her uh, evidence from science, and we would have questions. We'd ask questions of each other. We had a lot of conversations, and never at any point did it turn into like a shouting match. It was always an exchange of ideas, really like trying to understand and being honest with like the strengths and the weaknesses of both arguments. And so we trusted each other, and I never made any kind of statement about her intrinsic value as a person. Do you understand that? And neither did she. She never made like an attack about me because I held these views and vice versa. And I think that was so key. And so we trusted each other. We do kind things for each other. We weren't like, you know, I'm not, don't get me wrong, we weren't like boyfriend, girlfriend, but we were just good friends. We respected each other. She actually became one of my closest and dearest friends in college. So how do you love a person who has homosexual attractions? Basically, just love them like you'd love anyone else. Why is it any different? Have them over. Have coffee with them. Talk. Go to a movie. Go to the beach. Bring them to church. Invite them to your birthday party. If you're not very good at loving people in general, (laughs) that's a different topic, Um, but listen to what Jesus commanded, love them as you love yourself. So even if you're not good at loving others, you're probably better loving yourself than love that other person to that level. And that's a starting point. All right, whew, last one. You guys doing okay? you guys want, okay, read this together. What's one? All right. I'm going to, because of the time, I'm just going to read, okay, Uh, what I wrote here. One practical way to love your neighbor who's a disciple of Christ and faces temptations in the sexual category, hetero, homo, or anything else is for you to walk alongside your brother and sister And resist not just his temptations, but resist your temptations as well. Join him. Join her. You have temptations of your own. Join together and resist those temptations together. Okay? That's the short of it. It's not just you helping that person, but you are asking that person for his help for you. Because you need it. And the amazing thing is, as this happens, God will help that person as he helps you. And God will help you with your temptations as you help your neighbor with his. It's this great dynamic of love. And this is just one of the many synergistic effects that happen when people trust and dwell in a living relationship with the raised from the dead Jesus Christ. Amen? As you walk with your friend, your neighbor who has same-sex attraction and they want to resist and they're a Christian and they know that this is not right and they're resisting temptation just like you're resisting your temptations even though you're already a Christian. Here is, read this together. God's help. God gives you help to resist your temptations. And as your pastor, let me read this for you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with your weaknesses. But rather, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as you are, yet he did not sin. That's who Jesus is. And here's the comfort. Well, that's comforting too, but here's another one. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, to God himself, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You in your temptations have hope. Jesus Christ in his throne of grace welcomes you, invites you to come to him, and and he invites you to invite him into your struggles. Do you understand that? And you can invite your Christian brother into that. Your Christian sister into that. Your temptation may be different. My temptation is different from yours. I hope you don't judge me for my temptations. It's not being tempted that's sin. It's what you do with the temptation. Because Jesus himself was tempted, but he was without sin. Do you see there? There's a differentiation between temptation and sin. It's what you do with the temptation. So even if you you have homosexual attraction, I want to say, that's just a temptation that doesn't condemn you. Doesn't If you have pornographic temptation, lustful temptation, that doesn't condemn you. It's what you do with the temptation. And Jesus is inviting you, come to the throne of grace and I'll give you help and I'll give you grace and I'll give you mercy. And come together and you will find help in your time of need. That's how we can love our gay neighbors. And anyone else for that matter, as ourselves, as God loved you. God bless you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the wisdom of your word. This is all you. This world is a crazy world, and it's just so hard to navigate. It's so confusing and it's getting more complicated by the moment. And so we thank you for the gift of your word that you reveal your wisdom to us. You give us the Logos. In fact, you came and incarnated the word Jesus Christ. Thank you. And I pray that all the things that we heard, whatever was from you, that you would seal it in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might be able to be humble and know that we are loved by the God of the universe who is sinless, That we can now, by the power and the grace and the gift that's given to us of the Holy Spirit, love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then also love our neighbors as ourselves. Give us grace that we may extend grace. Help us to reach and love and befriend all people in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. In our church, in Jesus' name, amen.